post-YouTube saga continues with episode 552 with Mr. Michael Vecchione. And because I'm going to butcher it, as always, please introduce yourself as well as tell everyone about the books you've written. Well, I, uh, my name is Michael Vecchione, as Tom said, and uh, I am now the retired chief of the Rackets Division from the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. I've been out of there for a few years now, and, uh, and I've been an attorney and a prosecutor, as well as a defense attorney for about 40 years. Um, I have done several books now, four when the next one comes out, which will be in the spring. I've done several short stories, and um, waiting to hear from Hollywood about one of the one of my books, and uh, actually two of the books. Ah. So, um, so that's it. I'm I'm very excited. I can't wait to get started. I have an idea that um, how I'm going to structure my next book. I have I have a, as you well know, Tom. I have a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, all those years and doing what I did, I can't help but collect stories, and I have a lot. Yeah. Um, and I and I. You know, you read Crooked Brooklyn, which was the uh, second book that I did. And it basically was a collection of stories from the time when I was chief of the Rackets Division. But one led to the other, and there was sort of a connection. So I've been told by people now in publishing that, uh, you know, a series of short stories in a book or a collection of short stories, they don't think we'd, I'd be able to sell or they'd be, my agent would be able to sell. So I got in a piece of advice from uh, from a guy who is an agent who said, you know, Mike, the thing is that at the end of a story, if you can connect it mm-hmm. some way to the next story, well, then that will solve your problem or should solve your problem. So I've come up with a I've come up with an idea that um, that actually my unfortunately my deceased friend Jerry who wrote with me and I worked on several years ago and it had to do with a an evil force coming to Brooklyn and and um, and the cases that I had been working on and I had been doing were part of this evil forces way of taking over and creating chaos in New York City and um, so I'm thinking that that may be my 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 nexus from one story to the next so we'll see but uh, but that's who I am Tom and um, and I hope that you're and I've been on with you and I thank you again for having me on and um, and I, um, you know, I, I really look forward to this and I hope that your listeners and viewers um, like what I have to say. So um, so that's it. That's who I am with uh, Crooked Brooklyn behind the murder curtain, friends of the family. And and like you said, a lot of short stories that yes. you're right, yes. if you could tie together would form another book. Correct. And the and the new book is called Homicide is My Business, about a mafia hitman um, who, who quote unquote, I befriended during my time because he came to me as a kind of a sad sack and um, and was looking for help because he had really made a very, very lethal mistake, lethal for him in terms of um, being able to live uh, a long, fulfilling life. And um and it's a uh, it's it's a really I think a terrific story I really do and um, and I'm, I'm I'm anxious to get it out. In fact, I got a note today from my editor. Uh, I, actually, during this week, I got several notes. They're in the process of editing, and they sent me the edited version. Wanted to know if I agreed with the edits, change them, add to them, etc. So, uh, and I got another note today about uh, about it. I, I wrote a. Um, a section that I call in memoriam to Jerry. I, I thought it would be 
it, it was necessary for me to do that. It was, it was kind of my way of saying goodbye and to acknowledge, you know, what he has meant to me as both a friend and as a mentor and as a, as a colleague. So, um, so we were talking about that today, my editor and I, so, um, so those are, that's it. And the short stories are, are, are coming. Um, I, I think that this will work. And, um, and if they, if it does, then, then there'll be another one, another book. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sometime after homicide is my business. So for everyone listening, I'll put those books in the description. Obviously, as always, I listen to Crooked Brooklyn on Audible, and then there's Behind the Murder Curtain, Friends of the Family, which I believe are on Kindle, which you can. Have, you know, I'll do it again. I'll explain it another time. For everyone listening, you can take Kindle books and turn them into audio books with your phone and your iPad. Right. It's it's the robot voice, but hey, it works. For the short stories we've done, we've done Hand of the Killer. We've done uh, uh, murder on the murder bridge. on the bridge. I always butcher that one, right. and um, and I want to say we've done one more before today's. Well, we talked about one that um, that was kind of a. Uh, it came up in the course of our discussion regarding interrogations. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that, yeah. Okay, yeah. That one wasn't. Yeah. That was the last episode. That wasn't like yeah. That wasn't necessarily a short story. That was just kind of more of a, right. a free for all. Me asking questions and Mike shooting me down. Me being like, if I just tell the cops the truth, and it's no, shut your mouth. Shut your nah. goddamn mouth. And you know what? Nah. All right, I'll shut my mouth. And um, But today's is a short story, right. and it's about – it's a, well, I don't want to spoil uh, – no, it's in the title, so I won't spoil it. It's about how a swarm of bees ultimately busted a guy for having an underground marijuana facility. And But because I have you here, how about you take it away, Mike? Okay. Well, first of all, I want to say that um, when we did this investigation – it was back when marijuana and the sale of marijuana was uh, was illegal in uh, in the state of New York, certainly in Brooklyn. It's not that long ago, but it's um, but it's it's around the time that, that I retired in 2013, 2014. Um, it started the name. Let me give you the name because I think the name is kind of a, a name that really people will will swarm to. Fuck you. It's called, this is over. It's called, this podcast is over. You're never coming back on here. You get one pun. You get one. And hey. every future listener and future guest, take note. You get one. Charlie Duke used out of this world when talking about being on the moon, and that was his first strike. There you go. There's well, your one strike. I'm kidding. Go on. Okay. And uh, the name of the the name of the story will be, because I haven't written the whole thing yet, is the, it, the name is the, the Red Bees of Red Hook. And um, I know that people are saying red bees. What, what are you talking about? There are no red bees. Well, let me tell you the story. There is a, um, I would say probably around 2011, 2012, in that area, the city and particularly the DA's offices were really struggling as far as um, uh, their budgets were concerned. Um, and what was happening is there was a the a, a kind of a disparity between the amount of forfeiture by criminals of, of money and assets, et cetera, in uh, in Manhattan, and uh, and a and a very very big disparity between that what they were able to re- recover in forfeiture uh, and the other boroughs. Manhattan has Wall Street, and it has so many. Sent, it's the center of so many industries that if people commit crimes in those industries, banking and, and other financial uh, areas of, of our economy, well, you could see how 
um, how their forfeiture is very, very lucrative. And, and for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, if someone commits a crime, let's say a, a theft like Bernie Madoff, okay? Madoff commits a crime and he steals through whatever method, in, this, in his method it was a Ponzi scheme, from people um, and steals millions and millions of dollars, then when he's caught and convicted, there is the ability for the state, the prosecutor, to seek forfeiture from him. And that means that he or his organization would have to come up with the amount of money that's agreed upon by the prosecutors and essentially cough it up to the government. And what the government does with it is it uses it to pay back victims, etc. Now, if there are no victims, then the money that's forfeited by the criminal goes into the budget of the particular district attorney's office. So you can imagine that a, a potential multi-million dollar forfeiture is something that a DA would be very interested in, particularly when his budget is being curtailed or is not as high as he would like it to be or she would like it to be. So um, that was the atmosphere that was that I was in and I was chief of rackets and I and and I one day got a, a visit from one of our detective investigators in the office. A great guy named Greg DeBoer and um, Greg was uh, was a sharp uh, investigator who always kept his eyes open, ears open for, you know, potential cases. He got a, he got a call from a former investigator from the office who was now working for the postal authorities. He was a postal inspector. And they are federal agents. And um, the federal agent, the postal inspector, had an informant who was, um, who was looking to work off, as informants usually do, looking to work off a problem that he had. And he gave him a tip. He said, the informant said to the, the postal inspector, um, I work in a place that is a, um, is a factory. So the inspector said, well, what's the, what do they make? <laughs> they make maraschino cherries. Now, again, I'm sure your listeners know what I'm talking about, but those are the little cherries that get dropped into drinks like Shirley Temple's or Manhattan's or, you know, drinks uh, that a bar would just simply drop that cherry. And those things are, um, those cherries are what were manufactured in this particular uh, uh, factory for the, that this for guy the, worked at. For the younger people, it's the much younger people. It's right. That's the ice cream sundae cherry. That's the what? The ice cream sundae cherry. Right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I used my, yes, my, my point of view. <laughs> Mike's like, when alcohol. you're dropping it in alcohol. <laughs> right. But they're also, yes, they used in ice cream parlors, et cetera, to put on top of ch- uh, sundaes. Sure. Um, and I had no idea when this guy told me, uh, let me please step back. So he told the inspector, the postal inspector, that he believes his boss is uh, raising marijuana in the basement of the factory. Now, it may seem to you and to your listeners and viewers that, well, so what? You know, the guy has a little small marijuana patch down in his factory, right? Or in his basement. Well, it turns out that the factory that this guy was talking about was one square block in Brooklyn. Now, that is a large facility a large facility. 
And uh, the inspector, postal inspector, didn't have jurisdiction because obviously it didn't fit into his into his um, framework of what he could investigate. And he came to us and called his buddy, Greg, and said to Greg, listen, this is what I've got. Um, and it might be interesting. And he came to me, Greg came to me and said, Mike, look, <laughs> this is the information I have. If it's true and we can get this, then we can seize the building and sell it for forfeiture. And do you know how much that would have been? Millions and millions of dollars. I mean, that would have, that meant that we could use it to buy new equipment. You can use it to hire new uh, investigators. You could hire new assistant DAs. You could give ADAs a raise. You can, you can modernize, you know, your, your whole operation with this stuff and with that kind of money. There's a hilarious parallel between like, business right you open up a new plant you make money you reinvest it in the business you get better equipment better hire better people better headhunters and you can open up a new factory it's kind of it's just like the parallel well if we get this we can have more investigate and it's just like the business doesn't give a shit it's just going either which way sorry go on exactly so that's that's exactly it so i said well look greg we got some we got some work to do because one guy's word and he's a little disgruntled or he's working off a case that's not enough to make a case so I say, why don't we start very simply? Talk to this guy and see what you think of him. And, and Greg did. He spoke to him. And he said, Mike, he came back to me and said, listen, I, I to tell you the truth, I believe this guy. I, I, he, he coming up with information that, you know, only someone who was actually in that factory and working there would know. I said, okay. So he said, but you know what? I don't want to completely take his word for it investigators are skeptical to begin with. And I agree with that because they can't just take someone's word for it. So he said, let me go in to the factory and see if, and see if I can, and and see if I could smell the odor that this informant claims is pervasive in a certain part of the, of the factory. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, there's an area in the, in the, in the factory that has a pipe that runs from the basement all the way through to the, to the roof. And he said, the pipe is not airtight. It's not enclosed in anything. And if you go by it, you can smell the marijuana. Uh, it's, it's a pervasive smell. I said, go ahead. So Greg did. He talked his way into the factory, which is a very, was a very difficult thing to do. And I'll explain that later, but he talked his way in and he made his way to this pipe where he, he, where the, the informant claimed he could smell the marijuana. He walked, came back to me and said, Mike, there is no doubt that marijuana is down below wherever that pipe comes from. No doubt at all. I said, all right, but we don't, we need a warrant. I mean, your smelling it doesn't give us enough to, and the informant doesn't give us enough. We need to have something more. And I made sure I was correct about that. By going to um, to an assistant DA who was our quote the the I guess the the um, kind of the legal advisor to the rackets division. We I I took her from the appeals bureau, who were the legal nerds in the office who do the appeals, and I asked her to come down to the rackets division and be part of our division and and to advise us on questions like this. So she agreed with me. She said, you know, you need a warrant. You can't just, you can't just bust into the place. You have no, nothing other than a smell. And this guy, it's just, it's just not enough. And we might not even get a warrant with that, 
with that information. We're going to need more. So I said, let's talk to this guy again and see what else there is. <laughs> so Greg tells me that um, he went back and spoke to the informant and the informant told him that um, about something that I had never heard of before. And the reason that this becomes important is one of the ideas that I had and one of the other assistant DAs who worked on the case with me had was to check out the usage, the electricity, the electrical usage of the building to see, you know, whether or not it's out of line with what a factory like that should be. And we would get an expert in to give us the information. So what we did was, um, first thing we had to do was to get a, the plans of the building. So I sent the, the investigators to the city. They got the, the building plans from the building department. And uh, Greg walked into my office one day and said, he was really, I could see something was wrong. I said, what's up? He said, Mike, there's no basement on these plans. There's, there, there's no basement. It's not listed. It's not, it doesn't appear on the, on the building plans. So I took it the opposite way. I said, that's the greatest thing because clearly what this guy must have done is he either paid off an inspector in the city or they slipped these, in, these, these plans past the city inspectors uh, to get the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, occupancy, you know, the certificate of occupancy without, <laughs> without divulging the fact that there was this basement down there because he had, obviously he had a, a purpose uh, for that basement that he didn't want anybody to know. But we then checked the electricity and the electricity wasn't out of whack. It didn't, it didn't, you know, it wasn't so high that someone could say, well, you know, he's got all kinds of marijuana uh, plants down, down in the basement and he's using hydroponic uh, uh, lights to grow him. It didn't, it didn't appear on the, on the bills, Tom. So we were now kind of stumped. I said, go back to the, the informant and see if he's got some kind of explanation. And sure enough, he did. Apparently, in a certain part of the factory, walled off from everybody who walked into the place, was a large, I'll call it a garage. But it didn't house cars or trucks or delivery trucks. It housed two enormous Volvo generators that were connected to the, in our opinion, connected to the hydroponic lights down in the basement that you that was was able to um, to power what was going on in that basement. When we asked the informant about them, he said that nobody he knew about them, but he said nobody is allowed to go into that area under any circumstance. He said even if something happens to the generator, let's say one day it just doesn't work properly and he calls the repairman in, only the owner and the repairman go into this garage to, or this area that I'll call a garage, to fix it. He didn't want anybody to have any connection to those generators because obviously put two and two together, you're going to come up with four. So that solved one mystery, which was the electricity. The, to me, the basement, no basement on the building plans was a great thing, not a bad thing. We still had to figure out a way of getting into this place 
so that we could get into the basement. Now, one of the things that we, we found out was that the fire department, as part of their duties, goes to this factory as it does with every building in the city of New York to do an inspection, to make sure that they've got smoke detectors, that they are not violating the rules in terms of uh, exits, all that kind of stuff, right? So we said, great. Let's see, let's, let's see if the fire department has any knowledge. And we sent Greg to the local firehouse. They looked at him like he had two heads. They said, what? What are you talking about? First of all, we didn't even know there was a basement, and we never went to, the, to any basement. And so we said, there is. Let's, what happens if we send you back into the place with the knowledge that there's a basement, and you want to go down there, and that will solve our issue. You'll be able to tell us what you see. I said, before you do that, let me go back and talk to my advisor, my legal advisor. So she said to me, Mike, if they had gone down there on their own as part of their regular duties and saw it, that's great. But you can't send them there because you don't have the right to send them there because if you did have the right, then you could do it yourself. But you can't use another agency to, to kind of circumvent the search and seizure statutes that exist in New York State. So that ended that idea. We couldn't send the fire department down there. So what happened next is I got this, um, the, the postal inspector came up with an idea. He said, we have a drug sniffing dog that I will lend to, to you guys and to the investigation. And we'll have the handler at night when the factory is, is, is there's no, no people around. And we'll have them walk the perimeter of the factory to see if the dog hits. I said, great. This is terrific. And you know what I'm talking about? The drug sniffing dogs work in the airports and, and, and they, and the port authority and the uh, postal inspectors use it to inspect packages that come in on freight and stuff like that. So they went out one night and came back the next morning, smiles on their face. The dog hit the dog smelled what we expected him to smell or her, I don't remember which one it was. It was a female or a male. And like, there's no doubt the mar- that's marijuana down there. I said, terrific. Now I think we have enough for a warrant. I went back to my advisor. She tells me, you would have, except about a week and a half before I did this, the United States Supreme Court said that drug-sniffing dogs alone, the, the reaction of a drug-sniffing dog is not enough for a to use for a warrant. So we were out of that. We were done with that. So you can imagine the frustration because we were talking about, as I said before, Tom, millions of dollars. And it was something that I did not want to give up. So I said to, I said to the guy that got the investigators in and I said, listen, how did it get this stuff out of there? Yeah. Because you know, it's, it's got to, he's not selling it from the place. He's got to be shipping it everywhere. I said, well, you know, he's got trucks leaving there every single day with maraschino cherries. And by the way, this particular factory was, it was rather old. It was in business for a very, very long time. 
the owner's uh, grandfather started it. He was a he was an immigrant from Italy, came over and began the and started the business. Then it went through the grandfather, the father, and now the son, and their names were Mandela. So I said, listen, Mandela's got trucks. He's sending all of this stuff out because this was he was selling these maraschino cherries. He was the largest distributor of it in the on the eastern seaboard. I mean, he was sending trucks from Brooklyn down south, up north. He was it was so I said, there must be a way that he's hiding the marijuana. And I still believe that's the case. Yeah. Um, in those trucks. I said, we gotta be able to stop the trucks. So here's what we got to do. We got to we got to have surveillance on the on the factory, and every time a truck leaves the the garage, you guys have to follow it and see. They said to me, "Well, Mike, how? Why are we going to stop him? We can't stop him, and just because he's driving a truck, and we can't stop him with the knowledge that there may be marijuana on there because we don't know." So we came up with the idea of looking for some kind of violation. Maybe the truck is not inspected or the truck has a broken taillight or, you know, the, one of the, the, the I don't know, some kind of Anything. problem with the truck that didn't fit with, with federal guidelines. We tried, Tom, we were out for night after night after night. Every truck was pristine. There were no problems. We couldn't stop any of the trucks. So that was another idea that went by the boards. And I, sure that everybody was listening to this saying you guys must be idiots i mean you you can't get this guy you can smell the marijuana the dog hit you know what's going on down there and you got the volvo generators but what we didn't have with the volvo generators is because we couldn't see them and we're only told about them we couldn't see where they were connected and how they were connected it had to be through the floor down to the to the basement well, the the very reason, you know, at first glance, they might say, what are you guys idiots? But no, I, I would say that what it is, is it's like, that's, that's your constitution. And those are your state laws protecting you for the Correct. fact that you do have to have, you can't just go on a hunch. That's Gestapo shit. That's Correct. you have to have a reason. If you can't find oh, anything, maybe they're looking at me. They're going, what is with this kid's apartment? I mean, I used a ton of electricity. I've got soundproof right. panels. What, yeah. I keep the air conditioner at 60. They're probably like, something's going on in there. But the reality yeah. is, is it's just it's just me doing must... podcasts. But those are the things that protect you. So it's not it's not goofy Keystone cops. It's no, that's how airtight, knock on wood, the laws are in this country to protect you, the citizen, not allow someone to just go, I heard they smelled pot. Fuck it. Go kick in the doors. Correct. And if we were people, if we were a law enforcement agency that didn't care about the law, we would have done exactly that. But that's not the way we operated. So we so we're kind of hit uh, a brick wall every time we turned around. It was um, it was so difficult to to and, and to 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 break through with this. We needed the search warrant in order to get in there. We kept talking to the, um, you know, to the informant and he kept us up to date on what was going on. But he couldn't see anything because nobody was allowed in the basement, but he confirmed for us that there was a basement that much we do. And the smell coming from below the floor of the first floor led us to believe that there was a basement, not only believe, but to know there was a basement down there. So, so we, we, we kind of were at our wits end and um, we had a guy, uh, George Terra, who was the uh, deputy chief uh, investigator in the office who worked 
with me. Um, and he's mentioned the Crooked Brooklyn, and we, he, he's just the guy that that I kind of hit hit uh, hit it uh, off with, and, and we worked on a lot of cases together. So George said to me, "Look, Mike, how about we do this? Let me send my guys to one of the neighboring roofs and see if the information that we received." that the pipe was used as an exhaust pipe um, is true. Let's see if there's a pipe. We'll send Greg up to one of the roofs. He can look at the building plans. He'll tell. He'll know kind of where that pipe is in the building and see where on the roof it comes out, if it comes out at all. And then we'll go up to the roof and we'll smell it and, and that will give us enough information. So I ran it once again past my legal advisor. She said, Mike, you can't do that. You can't go on the guy's roof without a warrant. You can't just you can't just, just go up there and, and, and walk around. It's the same thing as if you were going inside this building. You can't do it without a warrant. But I did send Greg up to the roof. And sure enough, not that roof, but a neighboring roof to see if at least the, if the pipe was there. That's the first thing. The pipe was there. You did see it. There's no doubt that it was the pipe that he had smelled and stood next to in this in the in the factory but she said no we can't do it so we had one last idea <laughs> and this was i thought george's an ingenious idea by the by george uh, he said let's get the pd helicopter and drop a probe down from the helicopter into the pipe and let it gather whatever it can gather and i don't know what kind of probe we had in mind at that point and then have it tested and see if it can tell us if the marijuana if that's marijuana exhaust so to speak i said george that's terrific that's great can you get the helicopter he said yeah I've already, i'm already ahead of you they'll do it for us i already got somebody who can tell me what kind of probe we can send all i need is you're okay to go do it i said before i do that let me check with the legal expert Guess what she said? No, you can't, can't do it. It's, yeah, owner has air rights. Yeah, above the building, and the air rights are protected as like the inside of the building, like the roof. You can't do it without having the probable cause to do it, and you can't get the probable cause unless you have information that there's marijuana down there. So we were stymied. I mean, we were, I, I didn't know what else we could possibly do. Uh, and I'm telling you, Tom, this, we're talking about probably the better part of six to eight months, maybe even longer, close to a year when all of this was going on. And, um, and Greg was so frustrated himself that he would go back to the, um, you know, to the building pretending to be you know, someone other than himself, just so that he could make sure and reassure himself that there was, that he smelled what he smelled. And he always would come back and say, Mike, it's, there's no doubt about it. But we had no way of getting in, Tom. We had no way of getting in. And I was frustrated as beyond belief. Other things were happening. You know, there were other cases that were going on. You read Crooked Brooklyn. You see how busy I was in terms of locking up judges and politicians and all kinds of stuff. Um, so <laughs> it, it was, it was the time, 
uh, it was a time of great, great frustration. And everybody who was involved in the investigation was as frustrated as I was. They would come in every day almost and say, let's, I, I got this other idea, you know, and let's talk about this and let's see. The informant couldn't, couldn't help us. He, uh, we tried to get him to go to the basement. He said, Mandela will kill me if I try to go down. He won't let me go down there. Nobody can go down there. So we kind of had to let it sit by the, you know, kind of put it on the back burner. And we were off on other things, you know, locking up judges, as I said, and politicians. And and it was, um, you know, it was something that would have been terrific if we had had the ability to, you know, to get in there. So, um, I, I, you know, I just didn't want to let it go, but I had to. I mean, I had no choice. So in between one of these cases that I was doing, I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was in the middle of the corruption investigation involving, as I said before, the judges, politicians, etc. I pick up the New York Times. Now, that's a very unusual thing for me to do because I was not a Times reader and I am not a Times reader now. I mean, to me, the Times was nothing but a rag as far as I'm concerned, and still is. Yeah. But what? But it was on my desk every morning. It was part of what I, you know, I was able to get the local newspapers and and the Times and Wall Street Journal, etc. And uh, and something caught my eye on the front page of the Times, a story about a beekeeper who had a hive. In on an island in New York Harbor called Governor's Island. Now, let me try to explain to the to your audience what Governor's Island is and where it is. It's if you know where this or, or kind of vision have a vision of where the Statue of Liberty is. That's in New York Harbor on Ellis on I'm sorry on Liberty Island. Then there is another big island called Ellis Island in the same area, which mm-hmm. is where. Immigrants came in from Europe and 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 Asia, etc. During during the immigration, probably where his grandpa came in. It's and where my grandpa came in. Yeah. My grandmother came in. It was you know Ellis actually, Island. Actually, probably same with my. Yeah, actually, I don't know why I'm, I'm yeah. like wait. No, I'm from Ireland. I'm, I'm dirty Irishman. Of course, that's where they came from. Yeah, of course, it's it. It is in that group of two or three of these three islands is another island called Governor's Island, and it did have a military. Uh, uh, base on it, etc. But it, it it was it was closed. The military base was abandoned, and it became property. I don't know. I think the government, federal government, gave it to New York City, and, and the city opened it. And it's a place now where a ferry runs, and you can picnic, and you can play mm-hmm. volleyball, you can play baseball, you can run around, you can just simply admire the harbor, and the it, it, it's a really a terrific place. And it was a woman who had a um, who had a hive. And she was in business and she kept all of these bees on Governor's Island. Now, I have to give you a little bit more geography. The island is in a, is situated directly opposite across the East River, not that far, but across the East River from Red Hook, Brooklyn, where the factory was. Okay. And the factory was right on, was like a, a half a block away from the coast, from the river. So if you stood outside the factory, 
and looked across the East River to Governor's Island, you could see, look across the East River, you could see Governor's Island. So this woman was had kept her bees and things were, were wonderful. She was selling honey and she did a lot of things. Until a time came when she noticed that every, and, and of course the bees would leave the hive, obviously, and go do their bee thing and come back and, and make honey. And But she saw at one point that the bees were coming back to the, to the hive on Governor's Island red. They were not yellow any longer. They were all, their bodies were all red. She couldn't figure out what was wrong. She thought there was some kind of a disease. She did all kinds of testing. She had, she, she uh, uh, ran things past uh, people who were, who scientists who were versed in this area and um, nobody could figure out what was wrong. They tested the bees. They weren't sick <laughs> until one day she herself read something in a local newspaper about the maraschino cherry factory that was across the river from governor's island in red hook and it was some kind of a either they were having some kind of a a, an event or there was some festival or something i don't remember exactly what it was or an advertisement and she got the idea she said let me see if this is the source of the redness for my bees so she went to Red Hook and she thought, you know, how could, how could the bees get inside this building? It's not going to be, you know, that's not possible. I mean, it, we're talking about hundreds of bees. We're not talking about just like one or two bees that you see in a garden every once in a while. Sure. So how are they going to get into this? How did they get into this building? Well, she went there and she asked around. She was able to speak to Mandela and she found out that there was a um, a discharge from the building that ran out on literally onto the street near the factory into the drain that led into the East River. What was in that, what was the runoff? It was red dye. The dye used to make the regular cherry into a maraschino that, cherry that, that candy, red yeah that bright candy, candy yeah right so she she said that she you know she was really upset and but she said to us that she cut a deal with mandela that he claimed i, I actually i gave something away i should take it back when he when they spoke he claimed that he kept open barrels of this runoff outside the factory and that the bees, he saw them. He said, I would see the bees around. It was sugary stuff. They would always be drinking from it. Sure. She bought it. She said, that's, you know, okay, but can you do me a favor? And he, and she asked, she said, can you keep the barrels covered so that, um, you know, the bees won't have the ability to get to the, to the red dye and to drink this stuff because it's ruining my business. He said, yes, no problem. She cuts a deal. She, um, and she gives the story to the times and says, you know, Mandela is terrific. He, you know, he understands he's an environmentalist. Everything is good. We have a, a perfect situation. So I read this and I said, 
to myself and excuse my French, I said, bullshit. This guy is full of shit and sold her a bill of goods. It gave me an idea. A legal we opening. That, huh? A legal opening. Yes, a legal opening. At that time, I had just established in the rackets division an environmental crimes unit that um, that was pretty active. We did a lot of, and if you didn't think that in Brooklyn there were environmental crimes, then you're mistaken. It's it's surrounded. I shouldn't say surrounded. It's well, yeah, almost. Um, I would say at least on it's it's on part of Long Island, even though people don't know that, but it's on part of Long Island. It's got a lot of waterways, there are rivers, etc. So that's one of the places where environmental crimes could occur. There are there are a lot of a lot of things. We were we we busted people who were f- taking fish, protected fish out of the waterways and they were it was a delicacy in Chinese restaurants all over the city and those fish were protected and they weren't supposed to be taken. And we had people going out in the middle of the night fishing and taking this stuff and, and selling it later on on the black market. So I was going to say, even, I mean, even in Northern New Hampshire in the middle of fucking nowhere, you'll be out on some river or plat place that looks like humans haven't touched it in a million years. And 20 miles in, you'll see some agent sitting in a boat, making sure you're not like fishing or hunting where you're not, they look after it there. They're going to look after it in the city. They, they exactly. do. They, they hit you right when you think you can't get hit. Yep. Well, that's that's exactly what we were. Sure. We were doing in the environmental crimes unit. We had and we had a, a great re- working relationship with the DEC, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation Police. They don't have a lot of them and they have to cover the entire state. But we were showing them that we had crimes in Brooklyn that they could investigate and should. And and they did. So we had a great working relationship with them. So I read the article and I call the chief of my environmental crimes unit into the office. Her name was Jackie Linares. And I said, Jackie, we got to take a look at this. I think, and you know how frustrated I am about the Maraschino cherry factory. I said, this may be our way in. Those bees are drinking that crap that they're using to dye those cherries and I bet you dollars to donuts that they're not drinking it from barrels, but it's a runoff into the river. So she said, okay, let me talk to the guys and, uh, and, and, and we'll go, we'll send them out there to take, to do an inspection. Well, sure enough, the state went out there, went to the street. They found a runoff from the building, several runoffs. And where was it going? Directly into the, into the sewer not into a sewer, into a grate that was near the, uh, the river, and from there right into the river. So now what we had was enough to go into, once we tested the, the runoff, and it was red dye number 12, whatever the thing was, it was not, it was, a, it was a, an agent that was not permitted to, be, to, be, to run into the river to pollute the river. And they said that this is a pollutant. Not something that should be uh, should be into in going into the river. I said, "Terrific! Now we're ready to go." What do you think happens? The district attorney that I worked for loses his election, and we, in a month or so, are out on our pers- respective asses. We that was it. 
That was it. The, D, the new DA who came in didn't want anything to do with me. He wanted me out. So I resigned before he was called me in to, to fire me. And, and the reason that he didn't like me is because one of the people that you remember from Crooked Brooklyn, Clarence Norman, the head of the Democratic Party in Brooklyn, I locked up and sent to jail, locked him up and convicted him three times. Well, this was one of the the new DA was one of his best friends. He grew up with them and it was raised, they were raised together. I was a dead meat. So that was it. We couldn't do anything. We had the case, Tom. We had the red bees of Red Hook solve the problem for us. We were a, we were going to be able to get in there and find this marijuana uh, farm, which I knew was there. So what happened? It was on hold. It was on hold. It was on hold. The new DA had no interest. A year after he's in office, he finally decides, and I'm told this by the guys and, and gals who used to work for me, that he was wanted to clear up and clean up old cases that were left hanging. But the Mar- and the Maraschino Cherry Factory case was one of them. I believe he recognized the same thing I did about the forfeiture aspect too. Yeah. So he said to um, he said to the the people who worked for me, the ones who were still left, let's put together a task force and and get the warrant and with DEC raid the place and let's finally get into that basement. I knew what was going to happen. I knew that they were going to find this. I mean, I was as certain as you could possibly be. The smells, the dog, the informant, Greg, listening, uh, smelling the, uh, you know, walking into the factory and smelling it. But the red bees, the swarm of bees from Governor's Island was the, the was, was it. That was what did it for us. And that led me to DEC cops going to the factory, checking the runoff. And now we had a crime. We had an environmental crime, but a crime nonetheless. We now had enough for a warrant and I couldn't do anything with it. I wasn't around to do it. I pick up the paper one morning, a year or so later, and I find out that sure enough, the new DA went into the factory and did a search warrant. And in Mandela's office, there was a, they found hidden behind a shelving unit was a secret door. And when they opened up the door, where do you think it went? Down to the basement. When they went down, there was a farm. It had just been harvested. They told me, and the newspaper said it, they had just, he must have cleared it out. I don't know if he got wind of the fact that there was a, um, a, a raid coming or whatever, but it was only thing left were the plants, you know, the stubs of the plants that were, all of the leaves were harvested, et cetera. It was as frustrating as could possibly be, but it was not a clean, a clean um, warrant and a clean investigation. Why? Because instead of being careful and doing things the right way, they did it rushed and they left, the new DA left the particulars of the search warrant, in my opinion, to people who didn't have necessarily the the right credentials or the, the proper credentials or the correct experience. I mean, I had George Terra and I had Joe Ponsky, who was the chief investigator, and I had Greg, 
These guys have been investigating cases for, you know, forever. Executing search warrants all the time. Doing it the right way. These guys went in with a correct and legal search warrant, but what they forgot to do was to isolate the guy who was going to be arrested if they found anything, and that was Mandela. They did not check to see if he had any any uh, registered war- uh, handguns or firearms in the place. And what happened was during the course of the investigate of the search warrant execution, the search, Mandela was able to get into that office, into his office, take out a handgun from his desk, and kill himself in a place where there were tens of investigators. I mean, they were all over the place searching. DEC, investigators from the DA's office. There may have even been city cops, I don't recall. And here it is, the guy who was the target of the investigation is allowed to walk around and operate freely while they're searching, and he has a handgun and he kills himself. And in in your in your writing, you said he he asked to use the restroom. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's one. Uh, oh, yes. Thank you for reminding yeah, me. Yeah, went to the restroom and popped right. himself, killed himself. But the point is that that gun was in his office. It could have been used to shoot. It. it could have been used to shoot an officer. Correct. That's the that's the other part of this that was very scary to the guys that were there because I spoke to people afterwards and they were they were of course embarrassed and. The, the one investigator who had been working on the case for a while, for me and for, and then obviously still there when I left, um, had been in the office for a, for a good period of time. He was a good investigator, but not as experienced as he should have been. And um, he took the weight. He, you know, somebody had to be the fall guy and they wound up, he wound up taking it. Now, one other thing that also they had that I didn't, is they had a whistleblower as well. They had a guy who worked in the factory for a long time. If I had him, then I would have been able to get the warrant even before the bees. Um, he told us that um, and told the DEC, the DEC police and my investigators and the ADA who was working on the case that um the dumping was going on, the illegal dumping of the runoff was going on for a long time. It was not something that was new. And that he told them, he had warned Mandela, you're going to get caught. You can't, you can't do this. It's going to, it's going to happen. And he, and he told us about it. Now that was also another piece that they were added to the, the application for the search warrant was the information from, from this, this whistleblower and um, which made them, you know, which which gave them security as far as the ability to go in. The bees were good. The bees were good. The bees were really all they needed, but having this whistleblower also helped. So, but it became, once this happened, the, the killing, uh, Mandela killed himself, the entire uh, story became like, you know, it was <laughs> stranger than fiction. And the red bees of Red Hook was the hook 
it's another pun, but you missed me. You allowed me. No, to, I saw you it. I, I saw it happen, but I let it go because I felt bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> Was the hook that everybody needed to get to where we wanted to go, sure. and um, and as it turns out, Mandela's two daughters have taken over the uh, the business. They claim that they had no idea that their father was growing marijuana and had this marijuana business. Now, the question that everybody might have, because I had it, and everybody I tell the story to has it, is so, why would this yeah, guy kill himself over a marijuana arrest? Well, is it a because solo, keeping, solo operation or bigger? And that's the thing. The thing is, was he beholden to someone? Was he working for someone? Was he with a, was the money that he was making from the the sale of marijuana going to places that um, other than into his pocket? Was he being protected, you know, by sure. certain groups in Brooklyn? You know what I'm, and I think that your people know what I'm talking about. I was not in a position at that point to do anything, to do any investigating because I wasn't in the office. But I did ask around and they claim they, meaning investigators who were there, said they had the idea that he might have been hooked up with some organized crime group and that the mob may have been, you know, part of the the recipient of this money or, um, or he was working on behalf of them, etc. But they claim that they have found no hard and fast evidence. But I find, you know, I don't necessarily believe in coincidences. And the fact that this guy had this huge operation in a location that was industrial, but became over the years a very gentrified area where people from all walks of life were moving into Red Hook. Now, Red Hook is a place that is like a small town in the middle of, let's say, um, Massachusetts, like on the Cape. It's right on the water. There's only one way in from public transportation. That's a bus. There are no subway stops in Red Hook. The only way in is with a car or this bus. It's an area that... Um, that is a, a place unto itself. Little and, um, idyllic, little. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know what? What your your backyard is? Your backyard is the East River. Yeah. Lower Manhattan, the beautiful skyline, Statue of Liberty. So there were people moving in. I mean, it was becoming a very, very big and gentrified area. IKEA, you know, the big mm-hmm. store, the big furniture store, has a place right on the river. There is Whole Foods yeah, right on the river. I've driven, by, I've driven by that IKEA like massive super warehouse. Yeah, there. So, so there were people who, you know, who lived there, and this guy was able to kind of keep this whole marijuana thing on the down low until this informant gave us the, you know, the the first kernel of an investigation. Um, why? How was he being protected? Personally, and it's only my opinion, he had to have been. He had to have been. I, I believe at that point, for the time that we believed that he was selling this marijuana, when it was completely illegal, but it was lucrative. I mean, lucrative. Yeah. There were all kinds of gangs look, get, looking to get in and selling it. And, and 
and the penalties, unless you had a massive amount of time under New York state law, you weren't going to jail yeah. for a period. You weren't going to jail unless you, you know, unless you're like him where you had, you know, you had a factory filled uh, a factory in uh, or a farm, I should say, in the basement of this, this huge factory. So it's a question that remains unanswered. And, um, but I, I find that everyone that I tell this story to, they, some don't necessarily believe me. They said, no, nah, it can't be the bees. I said, I'm telling you the truth that it was the bees. If not for the bees, the case would have sat in the bottom drawer of my desk until the time when I got kicked out of the, the DA's office. And I shouldn't say kicked out. I was on, I retired, sure. Sure. Uh, but you know what I mean? It would have, it would have stayed there and never would have been resurrected. It would not have been. And Mandela would still be alive. And I venture to guess that he'd be selling, you know, marijuana today. Now, even more out in the open because it's totally legal. There's he no, might, you know, no, might even no open up a distribution, might even open up a dispensary. Exactly. Exactly. Right in this huge one blocks, one square block factory in one of the most um, expensive areas of Brooklyn now, even though it's, it's isolated. But I think that that's what makes it, makes it expensive. And, and it's a, you know, it's like one of these little niche places that people like to frequent there are a lot of bars restaurants etc but it's um he would have been making a fortune there's, make it more than he was making in the illegal business there's so, there's definitely uh, as everyone listens to this podcast knows i always make weird analogies and connections but this podcast this is definitely added to my arsenal of connections because I'm, I'm just thinking about how this is all an analogy for how the truth always comes out you know whether it's something undeniable like you know burning an astronomer at the stake for thinking that the world is round instead of flat or then eventually you know you send up a rocket and you go huh guess it is round and you know he gets vindicated but this isn't i think this is a beautiful analogy for the truth has to in order to cover it up you have to cover it up 100 percent of the time with 100 percent accuracy and even something as simple as bees turning red it's of if you can find a thread, the thread will be pulled on enough until exactly. until it leads back to the truth. And to me, there's something so fascinating about that, about how I mean, even something like the Soviet Union eventually it, it gets permeated and it fall it there's something beautiful about that. There's something like intimidating that the truth is kind it's kind of like a glacier. It's like it might take ten thousand years, but it will bulldoze a mountain. Yep. And you know, you know you know what we I always said during the course of the the corruption investigation I did with the judges and the politicians, people said to me, well, you know, how, how could it have gone on that long? How could they have been so corrupt? Nobody, the bottom line is nobody looked, nobody looked yeah. until I got involved. Nobody looked. Yeah. And the same thing with the, with Mandela, nobody looked, who's going to, who's going to look. First of all, the runoff was at the back of the factory running from the back of the factory into the river. Who was going to say, "Hey, you know, uh, that's yeah, who give, that may be illegal." Red dye. Yeah. Who like who who give? It's not. It's not like yeah. someone saw a pallet of like marijuana bricks. Marijuana. Precisely. It's, if you see the red going off, I mean, that would be as inconsequential to you as right. if I saw that the recycling dumpster in my apartment complex was emptied twice a week instead of once. You don't give a shit. 
It doesn't no, even register. Exactly. It does. It doesn't. It doesn't. And that's what he counted on. What? How he lived all these years with being able to do it without anybody finding out about it. He had. He. <laughs> He had himself covered by those bogus building plans in the, you know, registered with the city without a basement even being, you know, uh, uh, registered on the plans. So he was he was committing at that point pretty much the perfect crime. Nobody was gonna, nobody was bothering him. He, you know, and um, I, I wonder, and this is the other thing that I wonder when I heard about him killing himself, and I know that the idea was that you know maybe to he didn't want the you know, the mafia to come and, and do him away, do, you know, kill his family or do whatever because he lost, they lost all that income. That may all be true, but I, I don't know. I truly believe that there's, the, I, I should say that there's the possibility that he was distraught because he now brought shame to his family, to his grandfather and to his father who 100%. had a legitimate business, a legitimate business. And they had been in business. When I tell you for, decades in that spot decades um and he and the people said why did this guy sell marijuana when he had this thriving business he was he had he had accounts i'm telling you tom all up and down the eastern sea and um i can't answer that other than greed is greed you know and uh and the other thing is no who's gonna stop me nobody's gonna look no one's looking so see an opening See yeah, an opening. You see a market. Fuck it. Yep. I mean, that's exactly. I mean, you know, that's exactly. It. You know, it's kind of that that ruthless nature that really did build a lot of America. You know, it's not always good. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's steel plants and railroad companies. Sometimes it's you know an underground weed farm. But I mean, you know, there's kind of a terrible irony, and it's like that is the sort of that that mentality, that ruthless cut all the corners. You know, who's gonna know? Might have been greed. I I tend to think it's probably more along the lines of, you know, the mafia hitting them versus. It might just yeah, it might just be like I don't want to. Do, I mean, you hear it all the time. People like, going out my own yeah, way. Pedophiles that to... get caught, and so that there's a police right. standoff, and then there's a single shot. I mean, it's not that. Plus, he had the two daughters who yeah. were you know, who were working in the factory, and they maybe he was in his own you know screwed up mind. He was thinking, well, I got to protect them. I got to take myself out protect because they'll yeah. you know somebody is going to uh, come to them and and take it out on them. You know, um, it, it's it's really the the real question mark and the mystery of the case. Obviously, we solved everything about the case except why he killed himself and um that was you know that was that's that's still unknown and and even his daughters i mean if you read things and there's been a lot of articles written about this about this case from not my point of view obviously but the investigative point of view but from the point of view of the family you know of his his daughters and and what they remember about their grandfather and uh, and what they were told about their great-grandfather and, and, and about the business and about their dad. Um, and, you know, they, uh, it's, it's, a, it's really a tragedy from when you think about it from that point of view, because here's a guy who was a thriving businessman. He did not have to take himself out under any circumstance to basically survive if they if we burnt the entire 
marijuana farm out from under him. This guy had a thriving business for which his family was support, which supported his family for decades. So um, the mystery is 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 there, still there, and the daughters can't figure out why the father, why their father took himself out and killed himself. It's just, um, it was a tragedy. I mean, I have to tell you, I was shocked when I read it. Shocked. I, I, I couldn't believe that a guy who obviously had the wherewithal to run the maraschino cherry factory business and the marijuana business and to keep it as silent was not a dumb guy. He was yeah. not someone who, you know, who, uh, you know, had something, he may have had a screw loose. I don't know, but, um, but he was not a dumb guy. And it, you know, why he would decide to take himself out is, is a mystery. It really is. Um, you know, and think about what I said before about how he protective he was of that place. He wouldn't let the, he had to have also one other thing he, when the, when the generators needed repair, he only allowed one particular repairman to come and do what was necessary to to service the the generators, and he and the, that one repairman were the only people in there. That's how how secretive he was about the uh, about the and and the idea that the entrance was hidden behind shelving in his own private office was another indication of how secretive he was about this, you know. And um, so not a dumb man, not a dumb man, a guy who, um, you know, who was able to, to put together another business <laughs> in addition to the one that his family built. And, um, and yet, you know, ended tragically. It's a, it's a real sad story, I think. I really do. Uh, so. You know, that level of uh, secrecy might have also been, you know, just so his family doesn't know shit about it in terms of it was just like, no, this money's coming from the business. And you find oh, out, sure. you know, you find out your dad's a, you know, a, a drug kingpin. Sure, it might tarnish that. Mike, tell everyone where they can get your book. I got to use the restroom real quick, but I have a couple questions about this that I have been I want want to ask. Tell them where to find your books and your writings and shit. I'll be right back. Okay, the um, the book is Crooked Brooklyn, and it can be found on Amazon. Could be found in, um, you know on any online uh, bookseller. The first book was Friends of the Family about the infamous mafia cops case involving two. New York City detectives who were on the payroll of the mob, uh, killing people on behalf of of the mob, and um, and brought to justice finally after they retired from the PD and were out and about for probably about ten years until we got a hold of the case. Crooked Brooklyn, as I said before, is about my eight or nine years and is the chief of the rackets division where we took down judges and took down politicians and took down crooked cops and um and the book that um is the most recent is called behind the murder curtain and it's about doctors and nurses who for the most part were working in veterans hospitals in various parts of the country who were killing their patients poisoning them for different reasons um one doctor was just simply a sociopath who like to watch people die, believe it or not. And, um, and it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a great read. And you know, now that there's a TV show called, it's coming out, I think, or maybe out already, called Dr. Death, it's, it's pretty much the same kind of story as the, um, the first story or the first part of Behind the Murder Curtain with, um, 
with Dr. Swango in our book. I don't know the name of the Dr. Death in the TV show, but I mean, Swango was just a complete um, psycho. And, uh, and the next one that's coming out is called Homicide is by Business. It's about a hitman from Sicily who comes to the United States looking to become a man of honor. And uh, the question is, what is honorable in his mind and what is honorable in terms of our minds? And he, um, he is a, a colorful guy. And, um, and it's, a, I think, a terrific story about how he gets involved with the Brooklyn mob, how he gets involved with various aspects of international criminal, an international, he gets involved with an international criminal who wants him to, uh, who is responsible for taking down the Vatican Bank, and the criminal wants my guy Luigi to to kill a prosecutor and a judge in Italy because he's he's going to get caught, and um, and he winds up. Last but not least, he winds up being involved with a very notorious. Uh, drug smuggling operation called the pizza connection. And it was, it involved smuggling of drugs from Sicily into Canada and then into the United States in pizza supplies, cans of olive oil, cans of tomato sauce, mozzarella. And, um, and then it was picked up and distributed throughout the United States. And Luigi was a, was one of the distributors and involved in, and going to various parts of the country to pick up the drugs and bring them back to Brooklyn. Um, he, he testified in front of Congress, Ronald Reagan's Commission on Organized Crime. He testified at the Pizza Connection trial. He gets cold feet after testifying and tries to recant his testimony and, and creates a, a whole other problem for himself. So um, it's a, um, it's a, I, I believe a fascinating story, even if I do say so myself. Um, and I think that it's a book that people are going to enjoy because um, it's truly one of these things that a stranger, the truth being stranger than fiction. I mean, I couldn't make up a character like this guy if I sat around for 10 years trying to think up a, a hitman like him. I couldn't do it. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah. I'm hoping that, that everybody will buy it when it comes out. And I know Tom has already promised me to come on the show and, and to talk about it. It, it. it have to involve several podcasts, go Tom, yeah. because there are various aspects to the story that need to be explained themselves, as opposed to as a as a one particular uh, total. So um, I, I have an so that's end, it. I have an endless need for content, so it works out good. Um, Great. So for your to the to the the, the civil forfeiture, is there? Is there any conflict of, of you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like when businesses or earth, you know, like, right, because I'm a fat ass and on Fridays I order Domino's and they always, you know, tell you on the little app, they're like, you know, our, our delivery drivers get less than minimum wage. They count on tips. And I, sure, I get it. I've done delivery before. I've been a delivery driver for Chinese food. It sucks and tips are awesome. But at the same right. time, it's kind of like, why is this huge corporation kind of, uh, you know, what, what word am I looking for? Outsourcing their payment to the, you know, hey, you already bought the pizza, but you also got to tip our delivery drivers because we're not paying them a living wage. And it's just kind of like, what? That's kind of seems like a shitty thing to do. Like you're just kind of guilt tripping me to do it. Is there any conflict of interest to, let's say, someone in state government or federal, and this could be for any agency, but let's just use yours for example, of someone going, we're going to cut their budget 
but that will just light a little fire under their ass to maybe go after some more civil forfeitures so they can get their budget for this. And does that create an artificial, right? It's kind of like people saying, you know, don't drive fast at the end of the month because there are cops looking for their quota or something. Is there, and I mean, I know I'm shading this question in a way that, you know, it's, you know, would would make police forces look bad, but is that ever a, is that ever a, um, a conflict of interest? Like, Ooh, you know, our budget's low. Let's really ratchet it up and let's bust this guy who maybe we normally wouldn't have gone after with a vengeance. I guess that's, it's possible because anything is possible. And there are, it could be unscrupulous prosecutors who would do that. In my experience with the five DAs that the one I worked for and the, and the other four in the city, that was not the case. Didn't have to be because, for instance, I told you before, the Manhattan DA's office was awash yeah. with forfeiture. They didn't have to go and manufacture, and the city never cut their budget. Sure, what they did, they just did just the opposite. At some point, the city said, "You know what? You have so much forfeiture, share it with some of the other some of the other agencies." And and they, you know, they made they shared it, but they certainly didn't give us the bulk of it until it, there came a point when the DA in Manhattan said, "You know what? We will." We will share some of this. So um, I, I to answer your question is sure, anything is possible. I, I didn't don't see it. And the forfeiture is basically you, you're allowed to take what is either the result of the crime mm-hmm. or an instrumentality of the crime. So if you know the if if, if if for instance in Mandela case, if he obviously was using this building as an instrumentality of the crime, therefore it was forfeitable. Okay. Um, so it's not that easy unless you have you know a, an organization to make real money. Unless you have an organization like you know wall organizations on Wall Street or heavy banks or or you know you or Bernie Madoff. You know, I mean Bernie Madoff had to give back millions and millions and millions. And, and there were people who were assigned. There was like one guy assigned to gather all of his, uh, you know, all of the, 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 uh, the, I guess the, the results of his crimes and the, and the, the things that his crimes paid for, like his house and like his apartment in Manhattan and like the, you know, the silverware in his house and sell it and then give it to, reimbursed victims and and keep in mind forfeiture also goes to the victims it's uh-huh. not it's not just kept by the da's office you know it's um if there are victims then then they get um this forfeiture like for instance you know in the case in, in crooked brooklyn of the doctor who was selling uh body parts that he was taking out of cadavers without permission well when he was convicted the families of those um those vi- those those unfortunate deceased were able to get uh, reimbursement for, you know, for pain and suffering and for stuff like that. And that all came from forfeiture money. He sold his, his mansion in, in Jersey and, 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 and there were other things that he was able to, that we were able to latch on to, to, uh, to forfeit. Um, so, you know, and I'll give you one other example. We did a case once where the loan shark was arrested and when he was arrested, when we did a uh, um, a search of his home and his garage, it turns out that he was um, he had millions of dollars worth of baseball and sports memorabilia, all purchased 
with the illegal proceeds of his loan sharking business. So what we did was we set up a uh, an auction and uh, and auctioned off all of this stuff. And um, if we could identify a victim, then the victim had to just simply file a, a request for reimbursement and we paid it off. Otherwise, that money went into the DA's coffers and it can't be used for personal items. I mean, no, it's yeah, got no, yeah, no. law enforcement purposes, you know. So um, but so I have not, you know, I've not seen anything that would give me would give rise to me saying that, you know, it was uh, it's a conflict of interest. Sure. I, I don't I never saw anything like that. But but I've been around too long and I know that anything is possible. Someone somewhere. Yeah. 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 No, no. And that's that's not me personally <laughs> grilling you so much as it's a question that popped in my head. And then I was like, well, I have to ask that. You know, I can't I can't tiptoe around and just like it popped into my head that, you know, there are corrupt people. And I'm not saying it would be like an institutionalized. This is what cops. Are. I mean, you don't. Yeah, again, like you said, you don't know what assholes and what precinct and who knows what they're doing or. Um, but then on the other hand, I mean, there's a guy I'm having on Friday who is a whistleblower against uh, UBS, the International Bank. Right. In like the mid 2000s. And, um, you know, there was a whistleblower reward where he would get a percentage of what was repatriated to the United States and last yeah. t- lost yeah. taxes. And, you know, the people that were the lawyers that were arguing against him were like, this guy's just in it for the money. And on one hand, you can go sure. But on the other hand, it's like if he's getting 20 percent, but they're bringing back 80 percent that was defrauded from the U.S. government, it's. To me, that's like that's just like capitalism. That's just adding a little incentive. Like, who gives a shit? Yeah. Like, he got done. This guy would have otherwise not done it because multi-trillion-dollar banking corporations would have no problem hiring someone to have you found in a you know a ditch somewhere. So no, it's I'm I'm, I'm just more so just thinking out loud. Um, and it's not and it's not necessarily it's not that a guy is in it for the money. It's did he make something up? so that he would get the money if sure. he's giving legitimate truthful information which he did well you know yeah, that's was, what he's that's what he's getting paid for he's not yeah. um, he's not yeah. on salary to the government to to get the stuff so he hears it and the incentive is we're going to give you a piece yeah. you know i mean Absolutely. It's, it's, and, and it's up to the authorities to do what we did you've got to make sure that every I is dotted, every T is crossed legally before you do a forfeiture case. So, you know, it's, it's not just, okay, that's it. It's all ours. The guy has the right. Yeah. And the defendant has the right to even challenge it. Even if he's convicted, he has the right to challenge it because we'd have to prove that it was either the instrumentality of the crime or the proceeds of the crime. So, you know, um, yeah. And, and there's some like, you know, you come for the King, you best not miss. Like if you fuck it up, they're going to plug just kind of, you know, it's like, did, did he, did he, you know, trim and sell all the plants? UBS started plugging up all of their holes. All right. they started shutting down all these departments. And you're right. This guy that I'm having on Friday, uh, Brad Birkenfield, um, what was repatriated to the U.S. was $780 million. And he ended up getting like $100 million of that. But not after he was not, I mean, before which he was thrown in prison when he reported to the FBI. And it's come out that the FBI was taking orders from higher up politicians because who are their campaign donors? The rich motherfuckers storing the money. And so it's, and the thing is, is when this guy, 
when this guy did blow the whistle, it was years before there was ever a whistleblower award. So, no, you're right. It's not just, it's not, but for me, it's more so just trying to entertain all ideas, right? It's, you know, I, you know, it's, there is a reason behind for all of it, but it's also, you do have to add a little incentive. I'm not doing this podcast at a charity. I'm, I got into medical school. I could be a doctor. Instead, I'm like, fuck it. I think I can make more doing this podcast. And it's a risk and you go out and you might fall flat in your face, but there's also the, uh, the thought of reward. Second question. This is America. Exactly. Everybody has the right to make better themselves. Yes. I'm right. It is. What's the other question? And then we'll wrap it up with this is, um, is, with like parallel construction where it's like, you know, you can't drop the drone and, and maybe this goes, this might go beyond the scope of, of where you work. This might be more like CIA, NRO, National Reconnaissance Office shit, but with parallel construction where they don't want to burn sources and methods. So let's say, let's say with some Patriot Act amendment, you guys were able to just go bust in the door and say, you know, we had reason, it's in New York, you were funding, t- whatever. If they if it comes out in like the hearing like oh you know we knew that there was a a pipe that smelled of marijuana well now now the guy knows oh that was one of my employees and now you're fucking him and something like an intelligence agency might not want that guy fucked let's say this wasn't one just one cherry plant let's say there's let's say this thing was a hundred times si- uh, larger they still right. want their inside man, right? It's if you're using surveillance cameras on, you know, some VIP, you're not necessarily going to show the camera angle you used because now they can go look back and go, "Oh, that was in my bathroom. I only have one maid. Now I'm going to kill my maid." With like parallel construction, is there ever any any like I don't even really know what my question was with this. Do you have to be careful with how you go about, you know, we're going to drop a, a you know, a uh, a sensor into the or whatever uh, a drone into the chimney probe, yeah. yeah probe of course of course this I, I think i know what your question yeah yeah, you, yeah are you are you you have to be considerate of the person who started this with the piece of information the employee of the of the marijuana of the maraschino cherry factory of course you do that's why you do the kind of work that we did so that we don't have to use the information given to us by the by the first informant in the application for the search warrant that's one of the reasons why we tried so hard with the dog and with the probe and with getting on the roof to smell it because it's so simple to 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 get the warrant without having to give up the the uh the informant now also the warrant there are there are provisions in a warrant, a state warrant, that allow you to to say that the informant, the initial informant, should remain anonymous as long as you can establish that he is reliable or she is reliable. Now, how do you do that? Well, because we sent the probe down, because we had a guy go in on the roof and smell it, because a dog hit it. So you don't have to ever say that it's an employee. And the guy had like hundreds of employees, so he wouldn't have known which guy did it. But yes, the answer to your question is yes. That's the primary responsibility you have is to protect the informant um, and the informant's identity under all circumstances. And in my opinion, if you can't do that, then you give up the case. I'm not going to sacrifice some guy's life uh, or livelihood 
because he gave me information. That's not the way I operated, and I would never do that. Yeah, the bees. The bees were perfect. It would have. It was a perfect cover. <laughs> yeah, perfect cover. And yeah. and the way to handle it is very simple. The DEC does regular inspections. They went to the street. We don't need a warrant to go into the street. Yeah. The bees told us that there might be a problem. We went there. We found the problem. End of story. Warrant granted, and they go in. So it's kind of like it's a perfect way of of doing it without having to involve the informant. It's it's so. kind of like yeah. It, there's there's an art to it, right? I mean, it's like getting Al Capone for tax evasion. Like you, there, there you is, find there. what you can get and hit them on right. it. Hey, look. Even now, when I write these books and these stories, if if there's an like when I write this story, there's no way that I would ever mention this guy's name. Oh, sure, ever. sure, ever. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I and you know and and the idea of just simply saying you know we had this guy who was an informant that to me is perfectly okay because mm-hmm. nobody is going to to think back as to who this guy was and um, you know that's just the way it has to be. I mean, you're talking about now. Let's see, we're in 2021. We're talking about at least eight to nine to 10 years ago. So even yeah. if I were to mention, I wouldn't mention his name, but, but I wouldn't even think about mentioning it, even though 10 years have passed. Yeah. Away. Yeah. No, I, I got you again. Just that's random. <laughs> popped in my head. Very last question is just popped into my head is, man, you got to wonder was his old man and were his grandpa, did they all have this basement racket going? Was it a, was it a, a speakeasy back in the day? You know, uh, they could have been. Maybe. I never, I never, um, we never went that deep into it at that point. And clearly when the bees came about and we were able to get the warrant, I was gone. So there yeah. was never any way of knowing it. But, yeah. um, I don't know how you is could. Is it beyond yeah. the realm of possibility? Absolutely not. This Absolutely is... not. I don't think it was a marijuana factory. I don't, I think that if they did do something down there, it was something else. If sure. they did, I'm not sure that they did. Man, it's got to make you think how many, like, you know, whatever basements are the equivalent of are just in whatever neighborhood and in whatever thing. You have no idea what's going on, right? It's just right underneath the surface. Let's wrap this one up. Mike Vecchione, I'll put all your books in the description as always. And, um, and don't forget the two short stories. Two short stories. And the killer. And the killer. And the ones that are published. On, yeah, anyway. murder, on murder on the Bridge. Murder on the Bridge. And, um, yeah, I have all the links. I'll put them all in there. And uh, we'll set up next month's episode. And, um, yeah, man. Until then. That's great. Thank, thank you, you, Tom. Hey, man, thank you for coming on here. You always say thank you for having me on. You give me great content, dude, so I appreciate it. You did? We're good. Are you oh, good? Oh, oh yeah, no, your your image just completely froze up and you're staring at me. Oh, I was like, oh, no, I'm I was, here. I'm I was here. like, what happened? What has happened? But let's wrap this one up. I'll send it to you when it's uploaded and uh, I'll text you and we'll set up the next episode, all right? Terrific. And you have the other stories I sent you, right? We can do one Absolutely. of Absolutely. Uh, we can choose any of those. Yeah. Did I, I send you one involving a. Um, you sent uh, me. The, I think you sent me sale. two emails with two. Yeah, with, I sent you three altogether. One of them was the sale of a um, was sale of used condoms. Does that ring a bell with you? No, but I feel like that has to be the next episode now. No, I didn't send that one. To no, you? I think you did. I clicked on the first one and I and I read oh, the okay. I read I literally was in bed and I read the I read the whole marijuana. The yeah, read it. Was, yeah, all right, not, and I I know I sent you the one with the guy who dressed up as his mother. Well, and, um, yeah, 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 yeah. 
Well, my yeah. lo- my logic was is I if there are three, then I knew we were going to do three episodes. So I read the okay, first great. one and was like, I like that one. I, I guess I didn't glance at the selling used condoms, but now that has to be the next episode. Yeah, that's a, that's a good that's I can't, a good start. I can't not deliver on that outro. So, Mr. Vecchione, thank you so much, sir, and thank you for your time. God bless America, and uh, until next time, my man. Okay, Take man, care. stay safe. Recording well. Thank stopped. you very much. Peace.